Highly double. Grab your pants. Hello, hello, and good morning, good morning. Welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast here with Judith, Nick, and Patty. Today is a day. It, 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 it is a day. I'll try again. I'll wake up a little bit first before I try and open my mouth. Today is the day that the teddy bears get their picnic. Is that right? It could be. It could be. <laughs> well, I better down get their picnic. It, oh. You can tell you've got a two-year-old in the house. Nick. Oh, nursery rhymes just go round and round. Uh, yeah, they after do. A while, they, they do. But yeah, the results of the postal survey yeah. coming out. So yeah, ten o'clock. Ten o'clock. Ten yeah. o'clock. It is on the dot. Is um, it or not nine thirty? I, I thought, thought it was ten. Yeah. Ten o'clock. Pretty sure. Are you okay? Muddying anyway, the waters, Judith, though, Judith. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've been wrong before. We'll, we'll double check, and we've we'll only been right once. Yeah, I've been right. Right. We've got Graham Willett coming in to talk to us about where to next um, with all this momentum being gathered from the plebiscite, hopefully looking at some positive moves forward. That's later on in the show. And it is, um, geez, it's been a bit of a political time. We've I mean, Political time, political turmoil time. Um, we have seen Jackie Lambie now leaving the Senate as well, um, alongside, what, seven other senators, and there's a few others that are up in the what air. It's story. just chaos, chaos yeah. at the moment. Um, uh, but one of the seats that was vacated wasn't uh, wasn't vacated because somebody um, lost citizenship. Uh, Fiona Richardson was the member for uh, Northcote. That's right. uh, unfortunately, yeah. she passed away quite quite suddenly. Um, yes, yeah, so it was very sad. Yeah, yeah very very yeah. sad. Um, but now the uh, Northcote area is having their by election this Saturday, uh, and we were um, looking to get in contact with uh, a handful of candidates. Unfortunately, only a couple came through, uh, but we will be catching up with reasons. Uh, or chip, uh, and with independent Nevena Sporovska. Uh, mm. And the good thing is they're both new. Yes, so, both so new. So it's an opportunity to introduce oh, some new faces. Nevena has run with the Australian Sex Party previously. Oh, um, I see. I but didn't she, know that. Yeah. yeah, but um, yeah, just just sort of remember that she has um, run previously, mm-hmm. um, but she's uh, no longer with that party. The party uh, has changed. The Australian Sex Party is now the reason party. So she's with so, that party under a new name. N- well, no, no she she no. actually broke away. Yeah, she's um, she's definitely. Definitely independent and definitely um, has a different uh, different tact. But she, they're both I progressive see. politicians. We're after Claire Burns, the Labor candidate, and uh, Lydia Thorpe, the Greens candidate as well. Uh, both of them very busy in this final week on the lead-up to their by-election. Uh, too busy for poor old 3CR breakfast, unfortunately, <laughs> but we will be catching up with those other two. The yes, Royals, and, no. we're, and, and we're also going to be speaking to Amy Frew who's a lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre, and she'll be talking about the report the UN Human Rights Committee has brought down, uh, which has really slammed Australia's record, and she'll be telling us why she was actually there in Geneva for that. So, that should be interesting. Later. We're heading to a top of 31 with, <laughs> I reckon, a few storms and a couple of showers. Right. But we've also got coming up on the show a bit earlier on, we've got a snippet from you, Judith, from the Motherland Canada and about the Safe <laughs> Injecting Centre. Well, that's right. And uh, Toronto's just opened. I was in Toronto last year when they announced that three new medically supervised injecting centres or safe injecting centres would be brought in this year. They had to go through a few hoops to get that happening. And the first mm. one is just mm. opened last week. So we're just going to replay that interview with Sean Hopkins about how they went about getting that done. Um, and also... Um, 
I really need um, either of your tips. I've been planting capsicum, um, and every time I plant capsicum, the next day the snails are bloody eating it. Last night I went out, ten snails. Ten snails are on my plants. I picked them up and I took them off, but what... They'd already called their friends, hadn't they? No, they had. They were having a a capsicum party, and I don't get to be in on the capsicum party of all the snails have the capsicum party. No capsicums have yet appeared. Exactly. So I got this like um this tape stuff that's meant to create an electric shock on it. Clearly, that's just (laughs) well, yeah. That you know, it sounds, but no. Clearly, they just use it for giggles because um they're not. You probably not, attracted more. I know. Of that what fun. It's some about. kind of you know. So any, any tips? Coffee grinds. Coffee, coffee grinds. Okay. Apparently, if you get coffee grinds, it helps keep a few of the bugs away. You just set it around. Coffee grinds. All right. Yeah. Give it a go. If not, I've tried. I've also lemon heard juice beer, on in the leaves, beer, beer in a beer in a lemon le- yeah. lemon juice on the leaves. That's yeah. not a bad one. Well, look. Well, I mean, I, I want to keep track of this, and you may check out with the gardening show as well, Nick, because I'm sure that they is will a good have idea. A lot of good advice, but like I was about to say. Yeah, just go pick them off. I mean, that's what I used to do. And, you know, being a, a, a person just like to kill little creatures, and I particularly love snails. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. I know, it is a hard one. I didn't want to kill them either, so I was picking them off yeah, and, you yeah, know, putting I, I admired them, them elsewhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, I can't go out at 10 o'clock every night. And then what if they come back at 2 in the morning? I haven't gone and checked this morning because I had yeah. to get here. So oh, You might have to have an alarm on or something. <laughs> yeah, you could wire that up with the electric. <laughs> with the right. electric. Oh. And <laughs> That's a good idea. Oh, yeah. And then you get a great sleep. I'm going to alarm my capsicum. <laughs> this it. week, there's a festival happening just outside of Victoria, heading into New South Wales called Strawberry Fields. And I'm pretty sure, Nick, you have sorted a tune for us. Yes, uh, Amaru Tribe, um, relatively new band. Uh, their album came out earlier this year, and you can find that on SoundCloud, probably on Bandcamp and all sorts of things as well. Uh, and the song um, is Bahia del Sol. On 3CR. ¡Gracias! 
and you're here with uh, Nick, Patty, and Judith. And in the studio, who has joined us this morning is Laura Chip, uh, the reason candidate for the Northcote by election. Laura, welcome to the program. Good morning, everyone, and good morning, listeners. Now, we've, uh, we're only going to give you about uh, five or six minutes. We're going to run through um, some quick topics. Now, we were hoping to get uh, uh, Greens candidate uh, Lydia Thorpe and uh, Labor candidate Claire Burns uh, in as well, but both of them are apparently too busy for 3CR. So, um, look, we, we, we understand that it's pretty much a, a Labor versus Greens battle, uh, but this is your first time running as a candidate. No, not first time running. Okay, well, give us your political history yeah, then. <laughs> so, um, uh, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge a special day that we've got, the 15th of November, and I've got all my fingers and toes crossed uh, for the 10 o'clock announcement, which I'm sure um, a lot of you do as well. So, for the love of God, without any pun intended, please just <laughs> get this over with, at least start the process. So, yes, I did run back in 2007 for the Australian Democrats. Oh, so of course. I was the National Youth President of the Australian Democrats during that time. Um, I ran, obviously, unsuccessfully in a federal lower house seat of Isaacs where Mark Dreyfus was elected. Um, but I had a good two or three years heavily involved. Um, I, was a, I was a baby. I was about 20 then idealistic, wanting to change everything, um, worked out what politics was about, licked my wounds and then came back 10 years later to the day Um, and now we've started a brand new political party which is Reason uh, with Fiona Patton and there's actually quite a nice story behind that is uh, my dad uh, started the Australian Democrats back in 1977 and uh, 40 years on I'm doing exactly what he did by starting this brand new political party called Reason but the cool part about it is that Fiona Patton's a link so dad was Fiona Patton's mentor Fiona Patton was my mentor and then as soon as we were going to restart a new party I was always a massive supporter of Fiona and what she's done I jumped straight on board and, and co-founded the party with her and other people of goodwill. Top three policies? Uh, oh, God, that's, that's hard because there's so many good ones. I, I, Specific to the Northcote area, do you have ones that are yes. really targeted? One, ageing strategy. Victoria does not have any ageing strategy at all across the whole state. States like New South Wales do. Um, yesterday there was a big announcement with palliative care, but it doesn't even touch the surface of actually having a proper strategy going forward, especially within Northcote, within the ageing population. Um, Second, within the electorate, uh, drug law reform. So we just uh, got passed, luckily, which was Fiona Patton's legislation, medical safe injecting room facility, which is so great. So that will come online in about six months. So we want to treat drugs as a health issue, not as a criminal issue. And I know this firsthand. I've been a a government lawyer representing many vulnerable people with mental illness and and we know the health implications with self-medicating. And then very lastly, the third one is supporting small businesses. So small businesses usually get left out um, of the loop. They unfortunately have so much red tape to go through and don't have as much incentives. And this also goes for the artistic community in Northcote. So we want to actually be able to cut some of that red tape out for them and be able to make it easier. Yeah, so it looks like you, you've had a good look at the Northcote electorate and you've picked out some of the issues that are important. And I guess uh, I'm really curious about, uh, obviously you come from a political family, so so you know the ups and the downs of politics. What inspired you to come in to, to, to deal with all of the very adversarial system? Yeah, um, and it's quite funny because I've taken, I don't really take holiday leave, but I took five weeks of my, this is my holiday leave, <laughs> to run for this election um, and actually resign from my jo- job. 
I came back um, as soon as Fiona Patton, um, we had a conversation that she was starting a new movement. I was to be and so, blunt, so why do I, why do we need a new move to be blunt I was disgusted with the current state of politics the negative point scoring the focus on the big party machines and always trying to get ahead um, the saying of where you stand for nothing um, you don't what is, what is that saying when you um, oh I know the one you're going for now <laughs> yeah I always get my acronyms mixed up but bottom line is people don't stand up they're not ordinary people like me I can't relate to many politicians mm. who are actually sitting in state or federal politics so I wanted to start this new party with Fiona to actually show and represent people younger and older that people politicians are real people too and we do actually listen and call me a true Democrat but I think an elected official, God forbid, should be there to represent their constituency and not just make up a number in, a, in one of the major political parties or minor parties. Oh, Patty. So what's a major oh. hope? What's a, ma- what's a major hope for this election? What do you hope if it is a Labor and Green sort of fight here? What do you hope Reason gets from this? By-election oh, well, I thought election. I was going to win by 70%, mate, so <laughs> <laughs> that's really and sad news to me. I didn't know that. Um, look, to be honest, uh, it's our first election. It's unfortunate on the ballot paper. Reason isn't actually even listed under my name because we weren't registered in time. This was the election that no one wanted to have with the passing of Fiona Richardson. Um, but look, if we could sneak in double digits, I would be absolutely delighted. Um, we need to show the government and the opposition and also the Greens that we're, this is our first election. We're three months old, but we're bloody here and we're not going anywhere. And, of course, the Victorian election is uh, only a year away, so, um, you know, parties are starting to get into that campaigning mode. Um, maybe um, just one final little uh, chance uh, for anybody out there who is in the Northcote area uh, to, to pitch them on why they should vote for Laura Chip uh, for the Reason Party, which you won't see on the ballot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, vote for Laura Chip, vote for a Reason. Uh, we do things differently. Fiona Patton's track record shows that she's been able to successfully navigate not only significant amendments with legislation that goes through the upper house, but also initiate private members bill, which a community has called for. This is a party of action. It's not an activist party of blockage. Voluntary assisted dying, drug law reform inquiry, she initiated. Uber regulation, she did. Safe access zones around abortion clinics, she did. Medical supervised injecting centre, she wrote that piece of legislation. They're five of the things that she's been able to achieve in three short years. So the ethos of our party is we don't talk about it, we just do it. We don't political point score. I refuse to engage in negativity, but I will talk um, very passionately about policies and policy positions. So that's why you should vote for me. Action. I listen to the community, and if I am elected to Northcote, I will seventy-two percent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I represent Northcote. I'm not making up a party number, and that's what Fiona Patton's very clearly shown. She's a fantastic rep for the upper house in that area as well. And um, the feedback I get being in the community is that they're very happy and fortunate that even if I don't get elected, they've still got Fiona in their upper house. Good luck on Saturday, Laura, and thank you very much for coming in and having a chat to us. Um, Fiona has certainly done very good work. So if uh, if we can get somebody else, um, you know, like that in Parliament, it would be fantastic. So thank you very much and good luck. Great, thanks so much for having me, guys. This thanks is for coming in. Three CR Wednesday breakfast, um, and we have oh, you've got a, you've got a song there. Here we go, Able Aid. You're listening to Three CR.
20 minutes past seven on 3CR Breakfast with uh, Paddy, Judith and Nick. And that was Able 8 with Neon Flight. Able 8, um, one of the... Um, I uh, wouldn't even say up-and-comers. He's quite up there in uh, Melbourne's base scene now. He uh, collaborates with a lot of artists and helps out um, with uh, throwing a lot of events all around, um, mostly north side CBD, a bit of south side as well, um, and you can find him online. Is he guy. It's Wednesday here. News coming out at 10 o'clock. We, uh, we can't touch that quite yet. It's going to be a top of 31, I believe. But Ooh. before we get into the heat of it all, Judith's bringing something from Canada. Yes, well, um, Laura mentioned the medically supervised injecting centres or safe injecting centres. Last year, I was uh, in Toronto um, in, in um, August and I noticed an article saying that three supervised injecting centres would be open next year. So I was very excited to hear that, knowing about the campaigns here in Australia. So I contacted Sean Hopkins from um, Toronto Public Health, and she agreed to, to do an interview with, for The Wire, which, which was broadcast on The Wire last year. And it's about the process they went through in getting their centre set up. There are a number of benefits that we have seen that the community said that they saw during the consultation process. One is a reduction in deaths associated with overdose. Overdose is still going to happen, but we'll be able to intervene and save their life. We're hoping for a reduction in the number of discarded needles, a reduction in public injection, an increase in the uptake of other services because what we found in the international research is that once people get connected into a harm reduction program and similarly with supervised injection, that they may go to treatment or other health services, detox, housing. Were there barriers to be overcome before you reach this point of having the sites approved? Well, harm reduction is still a controversial thing. People still have a hard time getting their heads around, does this facilitate drug use or not? And even though it's been well studied and shown that even supervised injection services don't encourage people to use who don't already use, we still have to figure out a way to get the politicians on the side to talk to business in the communities and neighbourhoods Through that consultation process, what we heard was people want to be involved, they want to know what's going on, and they want to be involved on a go-forward basis. What was the evidence for supervised injecting services that was most compelling in getting the council to agree and indeed uh, members of Toronto Public Health to agree? Seeing a huge increase in overdoses over the last 10 years, but also the personal stories were very compelling to people, both at our Board of Health and at City Council. There was one young woman who was a client of ours at the works who was very vocal at one of our Board of Health meetings doing a presentation about the need for this service and the fact that she would use it. And she thought her friends and peers would use this service. And in between that meeting and the next meeting at Board of Health, she died of an overdose in an alleyway in Toronto. I think that story in particular Family members coming forward who had lost sons and brothers puts a face on a number. How were the sites for Toronto chosen? We looked at those agencies who were already doing harm reduction, already had relationships with people who inject drugs, and were already distributing a large number of syringes. So they had a bit of a core 
harm reduction program that this could be added into because we wanted something small, something relevant to the Toronto context, building on the strengths that they had in harm reduction and the delivery of harm reduction programs. And I understand the head of police has also supported the idea. Yes, I think their perspective on this is a bit different, but I think they see the value. We've had needle exchange for over 25 years. They see this as an extension, being community health centres and public health working together. It's a health service. They're not arguing about the need, but as we go forward into the implementation phase, we have to figure out how we're all going to work together once the exemption to the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act is obtained. Then we have to figure out what are the protocols with our police. When can they come in or not come in? Where are they outside of the site? How do we work with them in the community? So it'll be a partnership with them as we go forward. You described quite a a broad program that already exists in harm reduction in Toronto. Some programs like the Needle Exchange Program have been going for a long time. What will this add What we do now is give these supplies to people and say, you're kind of on your own. The three sites that are going forward see a very large homeless population. And so people are going out having to rush their injection. We know people have died around these locations. So what this will add is not only are we giving you these supplies, we're going to sit down with you when you go to inject. We're going to be able to monitor them and support them, ensure that they're using the best possible technique when they are injecting and reducing infections. And that was Sean Hopkins, and uh, you can hear the compassion there uh, from Toronto Public Health, and it's great to hear that the first of those safe injection sites opened last week. And we will have the um, first one in Melbourne um, in about six months. It's going to take a little while. Six months. It's been a good pressure fight put on there for that to happen. But up next we have someone on the phone. We have Amy on the phone. Oh, great. Okay, fantastic. So, Amy, um, first of all, I just, just as an introduction to the topic and what we're going to talk about, was that um, in October this year, the United Nations Human Rights Committee released a, a damning report on Australia's lack of compliance with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So, in particular, the committee pointed to Australia's treatment of refugees, the rights of Indigenous peoples, and also gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people, which, of course, is all on our mind today. And then around the, the gay marriage and um, same-sex marriage discussion and the announcement of the, um, of the results of the, the postal poll. Last Thursday, the committee published the recommendations for Australia. So Amy is a lawyer with the Human Rights Law Centre. She was in Geneva for the UN Review. And so uh, after that introduction, <laughs> Amy, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Welcome to 3CR this morning. So, um, Amy, I thought just first of all, because a lot of people might not be aware of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So can you tell us just what that is? Yeah, sure. So the International Covenant Civil and Political Rights, or ICCPR for short, is one of the um, the two, I would say, foundational international conventions that um, form the kind of human rights, international human rights landscape for um, the globe. Australia agreed to be bound by it in 1980, 
And the ICCPR, um, the reason I say it's one of the kind of two um, foundational uh, conventions is that it really, um, it goes to or it covers the, the kind of human rights issues that people think about probably quite immediately when they think of human rights. So it has things like the right to life, the right to um, liberty, the right to freedom of association, those kind of um, rights where um, the right of the individual is protected against intrusion from sort of undue or unfair um, government interference. I see. And as you say, uh, Australia signed this covenant in uh, 1980, and I assume it has ratified it? That's right. So, yeah, so Australia in 1980, uh, um, that's when we agreed to be bound by those things. So with with the international um, covenant under Australian law, um, we agreed at that time to do it, but that doesn't mean that automatically all of those um, the articles, the separate points within the convention, are automatically rolled into Australian law. It's then up to Australia to make sure that each of those things we've agreed to um, is put into our domestic law. And, and, and has that happened? Well, no, so that's the thing. So that's where... Um, you know, Australia falls down. So in some areas we're doing well, but we have we don't consistently comply with all elements of the convention that we agreed to apply to um, comply to, and yes. that's what the the committee drew attention to last week. The areas that we um, need to make some significant improvement on. I see. And Amy, what was your role in Geneva? Well, you were there, I gather, for um, for at least the discussions. What was your role there? Yeah, sure. So the um, when as part of the review process, Australia writes a report saying what they've done, um, and that's every um, four years. And then once they've released that report, civil society has the opportunity to to make what's called a shadow report, and that's where where Australia naturally highlights the things that that we've done well. Um, civil society is keen to say, well, hang on a second, there's a lot of areas that still need a lot of improvement. So the Human Rights Law Centre um, and Kingsford Legal Centre, which is a community legal centre based in Sydney, coordinated the shadow report that was um, ultimately endorsed by 56 organisations across Australia, highlighting the issues that civil society saw Australia needed to make some, well, in many cases, quite radical changes. Oh, and then I was part of a delegation over there mm-hmm. um, that went along to make sure in person we, we briefed the committee and were on standby to provide further information to make sure that the committee was fully informed of all the different details of the ways in which we thought that Australia could do better. So it sounds like the committee was looking at at least two reports, one the shadow report produced by civil society and coordinated I think by by you uh, or your organisation, and also there was the the report from the was it from the Australian government? Yes, the Australian government provides their official report. I see. And we coordinated a report, but actually um, anyone can really make a, a submission in the review phase. So, oh, I see. Um, you know, other other groups did did also make reports and there were other people in um, Geneva as well, other civil society groups, I should say. Yes. Um, So it is an an opportunity for um, lots of people if they want to get involved. But obviously, um, given the sort of 
complexity of, of the UN system is um, not necessarily something that people are aware of. Or, right, um, but know, but it's fantastic that you know it is open and and a lot of people actually can make make a contribution, and so this isn't uh, my understanding is this isn't the first time Australia has been called out or censured by the UN for its human rights record. No, well, I mean, so we, as in most states. You know, Australia is taking time to implement all of the things they agreed to. But naturally, as you can see, from 1980, we've had 37 years to get there. So, yes, um, <laughs> that's, a fair, that's a fair time to get there, yes. <laughs> but um, you're right, it's not the first time. And the UN, in particular, recently, the UN has made a number of public statements, um, in particular, about the treatment of refugees and people seeking asylum. And uh, so in the last couple of weeks, in particular around the issue of the um, Manus Island Detention Centre, we've had the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights making a very strong statement um, about the treatment of the men being held there. And the UNHCR has, has made a number of statements. But we've also been reviewed this year, for example, by the international, the other sort of foundational covenant, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and in, in that con concluding observations as well, they made a number of comments around um, where Australia needs to lift its game, basically. So what does it feel like as an Australian hearing um, that Professor Yuval Shani, the vice chair of the committee, describes Australia's record as chronic noncompliance and, uh, and so low it's completely off the charts? I mean, how does that feel for, for when you hear those things? Yeah, I mean... I mean, for a while, I think we we were very um, grateful that the committee took such a, a good close look at Australia. And I think, on the other, it shows how far Australia has to go. And there are many, many states in the UN, um, but Australia is in the lucky position of being a very wealthy, well-educated state. And we should really be a leader in, in human rights and a leader in, in compliance with the UN. Um, but it's shameful that we were given a grading of E in our compliance with the observations that the committee has made um, in complaints made to it. And that's pretty embarrassing, I think, for a country that is very well resourced and, and much better than, than many other countries to um, yes. be able to deal with the UN. Yes. And, um, you know, if we would have had about four weeks ago now, Australia was voted onto the Human Rights Committee is a three-year, uh, sorry, the Human Rights Council, which is a three-year term commencing early next year. Um, and that's really an opportunity, hopefully, for Australia to step up and start leading, uh, especially in our region, on human rights. Mm, and, and so what has Australia been called on to do? What is the UN looking for from Australia? So they made um, quite a few recommendations in their concluding observations. And I think in your intro, you picked up on three of the key areas being the treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees. Yes. Um, LGBTI um, Australians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And it, in those, with the people seeking asylum and refugees, they made strong recommendations about um, bringing all the people in off currently, or ending offshore detention and bringing people in offshore detention back to Australia. Um, also recommendations about the current practice of turning boats back at sea. So when people seeking asylum by boat, 
um, currently the Australian government policy is to turn them around and send them back. Mm-hmm. Um, they also made recommendations, as you picked up on, about the, um, the plebiscite um, for um, marriage equality, which I mean, we will be, we'll know the answer today by 10 a.m., but they made comments about how inappropriate it was to have a public vote Yes, I mean, I've, I've actually, uh, you know, taken something out of that report, which says resort to public opinion polls to facilitate mm. upholding rights under the covenant in general. I mean, say no more, you know, and equality yeah. and non-discrimination of minority groups in particular is not an acceptable decision-making method and risks further marginalizing and stigmatizing members of minority groups. Well, you know, just this morning, there's been the report of more calls to helplines from young gay lesbian people, you know. So, yeah, that's quite a, a strong statement, I felt. Mm. Yeah, they didn't mince their words, um, and they made a number of strong statements in the in the um, in the review itself. And I think that's the thing um, when when you know very lucky, wealthy, well-educated nations like Australia show up. Um, I think there's a, a, a expectation that will that we can do a lot better. And yes. um, certainly, the recommendations lay out a number of ways in which we can do better. Yeah. I Amy, mean, I just wanted to ask, do you know what the ramifications if Australia doesn't lift their game um, when they're on the chair of the human rights in the UN? Yeah, so there's no um, direct sort of punitive ramifications, but I guess there's the, the reputational risk. So Australia very much sees itself as a leader, in, in particular in our region, in Asia-Pacific and human rights. And some of the things that we champion are... Um, ending the death penalty, those kinds of issues. Um, but we've got, you know, a really limited capacity to influence when it looks like we're not doing the right thing ourselves. Yes. And I think um, in particular with people seeking asylum, for example, um, we're currently at the moment involved in human rights violations and really drawn um, the countries of Nauru and Papua New Guinea into that um you know, yes, situation. Indeed. Yes. And it's very hard for us to turn around and say, oh, well, you should be complying with, you know, your human rights obligations on one hand, while on the other, we're really facilitating in their own countries, things like that. Yeah. Um, there another, seems to another... be a discrepancy between Australia's, you know, public face internationally. Uh, where, as you say, they have been seen in the past, at least, as, as leaders, and also promoting the Asia area, you know, where people have human rights um, statutes or th- that kind of thing. Whereas at home, mm. it's a totally different story, it would seem. Absolutely. And lots of countries, in, in particular in the Pacific, have very strong constitutions and bills of rights built into their legislation already, which is something Australia doesn't have. And one of the recommendations also was around Australia having a bill of rights. But I think Australia um, has the capacity and should be a leader of human rights, um, in particular in, um, in the Asia-Pacific, which is an area where we're very um, proportionately powerful and, and wealthy, um, and it's a real shame at the moment that we're. That I think, yeah, we we're not in a strong position to do that, given that we're in committing yes. so many um, violations ourselves. Yeah. So, with regard to issues around refugees, I know you've done a lot of legal work in that area, and and the, of course the situation that we're sitting on is is just so incredibly sad at Manus Island. Um, what what do you see as might happen out of that? Is there any way out for Australia? 
um, of course, we'll, yeah, we've seen you know increasing reports in the last few days about New Zealand taking uh, or offering to take 150 people. But I think at, at this moment, the resolution really lies in the hands of, of our government, of Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton, because they could, in an instant, bring all of those people to Australia and bring them to safety. And we don't know what the future holds for those people, but what we do know is that they've been held on in offshore detention for the last four and a half years now. And, and, and I think most are, are have been identified as genuine refugees. They ha- that's correct. So um, over 80% across both uh, Nauru and Manus have been proven to be refugees at this stage. So certainly not in question that they're not deserving of our um, protection under the convention, or it's another convention we signed, the Refugees Convention. Um, and it's a it's a crisis. The UN has called it a humanitarian crisis on Manus at the moment. The men have been in the detention centre now without electricity, running water or food supplies for, this is the, I think this is the 15th day. Um, they're really terrified that if they stay there, they'll be attacked by the Papua New Guinean Defence Force. And, and that's a, a, a valid concern given that on Good Friday this year, they were attacked yes, that's by the right. Papua New Guinea Defence Force and over 100 live rounds were fired into the, um, the compound. And, and, but they're terrified also if they leave, that they'll be thrust out into the community. And the, the local Manusian community... Um, they're not equipped to to take on a, a large number of, of people. They're, um, they've got a, a kinship culture and a lifestyle that means that it's not it's not one that easily um, expands to, right. to encompass. So so it sounds hundreds of men. Mm, so it sounds like Australia really has a lot to do to improve its image, both in the eyes of the UN and uh, also, I think, uh, the eyes of Australian people, because I know with all the demonstrations we've seen, people are quite distressed about what's going on there. Amy Frew, I really appreciate you coming on this morning and and providing more information about the Covenant and uh, just Australia's human rights record and how we're looking at the UN and, and all the best with your work. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. You can have your say on any topic that we're talking about here on 3CR Breakfast, 0488 930 uh, SMS us and let us know your thoughts, 0488 930 And just a quick update from Twitter uh, as well. Uh, this one's from Nick McKim, Green Senator for Tasmania. He tweeted that the Senate uh, has... Um, uh, called on Prime Minister Turnbull to accept New Zealand's uh, refugee resettlement offer of uh, resettling 150 refugees uh, over the, the Tasman. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Throughout the day, you're tuned to 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to say thanks to program sponsor, the New International Bookshop, for the financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Eight Days of Solidarity with Refugees is a grassroots campaigning to support long-term detained refugees. Between the 12th and 19th of November, there will be vigils, film nights, a community picnic, a solidarity walk and more. Anyone is welcome to make an event or organise solidarity actions. Look at more info on 8daysofsolidarityforrefugees.wordpress.com. 8 Days of Solidarity is a 3CR supporter. 
words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra.
And that was the Chris Comfort Band, Stay. If you want to get down to a gig happening there, down at the Penny Black this Friday, starting at 8.30pm. Well worth a listen. Uh, it is... Oh. It is 3CR Wednesday breakfast, about 10 minutes away from 8 o'clock uh, today. Um, ke- keeping our warm week going on top of 33. Um, but apparently afternoon showers and possible storm. Although I feel like I've seen this in our reports like for the first half of the week and it's been nothing but sun. Um, but tomorrow, 21 in showers, uh, 22 and uh, some showers on Friday uh, as well. Right. Well, I mean, and I remember just last week I was trying to push you up to 19. <laughs> so, yeah, it happened quickly, didn't it? it? Did you raised quickly. an 18 to 19, uh, I believe. That's right. Um, now, uh, I mean, yeah, today, today's the day for for the vote. Um, there are a few uh, events and parties on, uh, I believe, from 5.30 at the Victorian Trades Hall. Um, there is a party that will be happening uh, no matter what what the outcome is um, from 5.30, so please do head along to that. There are a number of other events that are happening uh, all around Melbourne and across the country, and we'll um, get a few more uh, details of those up for you uh, later on so that you can join uh, join in those. Um, but uh, I, I also did find on, on Twitter, we've got a few people that are predicting the response now. Magda Zabanski is going with uh, 73% yes. I don't know if she's put any money on that. but uh, <laughs> I'll put money on it in principle. <laughs> but I, I noticed as well last night that there were a um, uh, an outpouring of articles from almost every major publication and um, and a lot of the, the smaller publications as well. Uh, people like uh, Premier uh, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has penned a piece for the age, um, really um, uh, trying to uh, I, I guess uh, trying to offer some some advice uh, if uh, there is a no vote on on you know that we we should be remembering what this is all about and really it's not all about politics it is about love yeah, and, oh, and that's good. the important yes, thing it is um, it is and if we keep focusing on that he mm. I think his um his point was uh, you know coming from a, a guy that's been involved with politics for a while that come, sometimes change is painful and it does take a long time but it will change um, so no matter what I mean he he did also point out that it was what only twelve. 13 years ago that the federal government specifically legislated uh, to uh, cut out any uh, same-sex marriages from the Marriage Act. That was with um, John, John Howard. Oh, um, surprise. Who, yeah, wrote, wrote that in there. So, you know, it's only been um, 12 or 13 years and, and we're here at least, sort yeah. of. <laughs> yeah. And only 30 years ago it was illegal. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right. Yeah, the yeah. South Australia was, I think, the first state to change that in 1975. Yeah. But geez, um, then the, uh, the the other side is I just saw somebody uh, retweet some um, uh, something that apparently uh, Tony Abbott had said uh, that oh, I mean he he's just he was just flat out lying. Um, this this kind of lying that goes on from politicians these days. I'm pretty sure it's a kind of lying you always hear when when 
you know they know the truth and they say something that's the opposite in order for that information to reach their supporters so that their supporters believe that their skewed version of reality is actually the truth and then continue to repeat that so it becomes the truth and I'm putting that in sarcastic quotation marks now Mm -hmm. but his claim was that there's been no bullying or prejudice from the no campaign even though there's been you know bad stuff from both sides but I mean it's just it's lying there's no there is no way that Tony Abbott, as a uh, member, you know, a former, a former pr- a prime, prime minister of the country, mm. um, cannot have noticed that there are some. Uh, beep, beep, beep. People do see <laughs> things through their own, I mean, layered way or their own lens. You'd be surprised. I remember because um, I often would present when I was lecturing at university, um, you know, our articles and research that would show a different point of view from perhaps that some of the students held. But even then, they they would see it through their own lens. So. You know, you just never know what's going on in people's heads. They're so enmeshed in their own worldview. I just wish people would, um, I don't know, sometimes have a dig around in their own mind and their own assumptions and go, mm, yeah, maybe I'm not really being honest with myself. Maybe I do have a bias here. Maybe I... But we none you know. of us have a bias, right? No, 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 because I no, dig around no, in my assumptions. <laughs> well, no, you know what? Something I want to I want to take this away from this like equal middle ground because you often get people who will be like, oh yeah, but you've got your biases too, no, and it's like, no, yeah, no, yeah, but I might be able to admit mine and discuss mine ah. where you want to ignore yours, no, lie I will. about I them, will. Yep. and yeah, yeah, I'm talking <laughs> no, about the Tony no, Abbott no, here. No, sorry. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing. But you know, they want to, you know, and I think there is that yeah. difference between somebody that's like, yeah, all right, I do have, you know, I do have this way of um, seeing things. Mm. I'm willing willing to listen and and talk mm. about it, um, but then. I think you get the other approaches: lie, deceive, um, and just pretend that um, you. Of course, you don't. That's just the way mm. it is. Pretend to be objective. That's mm. that's the uh, the dishonest way. Yeah. Well, one of the th- my great moments was when one of my students' feedback was, "I realised that some things I was told weren't actually true." <laughs> and dun, I thought, dun, dun. <laughs> so anyway, I guess she'd been reading the research and uh, you know and the evidence and. I think that's what we really need to look at is, you know, what is the evidence telling us? And often that's really missing in a lot of the debates, public debate. Mm. Big time. You bring that to the 3CR game though, Judith. You really oh, look okay. into, the, Thank into you. the evidence and give us a good insight. <laughs> it's all that public health background. I think we're um, we're going to get stuck into some um, some news shortly as well. Um, uh, dig, dig down, drill down into uh, into some issues. Yes, well, I mean, one of the things that, and there's two things, that actually I've been following two stories. One is the trial of the Pine Gap Pilgrims, which yeah. is happening this week in Alice Springs. The other, of course, is the, the uh, abduction of Saad Hariri by the Saudi Arabians. Oh my, which, what is going week, on in Saudi Arabia? I know, I know. I mean, one commentator suggested that it's kind of like Russia in the 60s. No one really quite knows. But uh, but first of all, I'd just like to talk a little bit about the trial of the Pine Gap Pilgrims because we had... Uh, Margaret jump, in, jump into it? Yep, let's yeah. do it. Okay, yeah, this is a good time. Okay, so, so this week the six Pine Gap pilgrims, sometimes they're called the Peace Pilgrims, um, are on trial in the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory in Alice Springs. So Monday, Paul Christie faced the court, and tomorrow, November 16th, Margaret Pistorius, uh, Tim Webb, Franz Dowling, Andrew Payne, and Jim Dowling will appear. They're charged with entering a prohibited area under the Defence Special Undertakings Act, which was passed in 1952. And if found guilty, they could face fines of up to 42,000, up to seven years in jail. Now, this is a departure from past practice because in past protests at Pine Gap, 
People who entered the prohibited area were usually charged with trespass under the Commonwealth Crimes Act, and that carries a maximum penalty of $1,800. So being charged under the Defence Special Undertakings Act is a lot more serious. And um, the act was really, it was passed in 1952 to establish prohibited areas and security for British nuclear testing at Montebello Islands and later at Maralinga, and then it was extended to cover military installations. When the act, and I'll just cast yourself back to 1952, you know, the Cold War was on. We were very much, uh, you know, uh, dedicated to Britain, strongly aligned. And when it was passed, even then, it was described as having drastic provisions. Uh, First of all, because prosecution has to be authorised by the Commonwealth Attorney General. Secondly, there are provisions for um, meetings to be held in secret, or or the trials to be held in secret, and records of hearings to be destroyed. So this is quite, you you associate this with war and sedition laws, this kind of thing. And also, there's been no, there's only been one previous prosecution. So it went 1952 to 2007. There were none. So why is this kind of drastic act, draconian act, being pulled out now and applied to these protesters? Um, so, th- so this has um, been a matter of a lot of concern. Um, the Saturday paper uh, published uh, an open letter. So obviously this is not coming from the Saturday paper itself. It is paid for by people who support the protesters and who are very concerned about them being tried under this act. So um, the, the, the let open letter was signed by around 200 very prominent citizens who are well informed about this issue. But I started looking around to see, you know, what else there was in the medias because I was wondering how the trials were going. And uh, really, I haven't, there's not been a lot, but I can say that um, other than the Saturday paper, the open letter, the Alice Springs News Online is the place where I would say I found the best uh, coverage and um, and may, maybe perhaps a little bit more sympathetic, if we can say that. So they had a big article about on November 1st about the, the upcoming trial and the issues of concern. They, they heard had quotes from Richard, Professor Richard Tanter, for example, about what's going on in Pine Gap. And um, Scott Ludlam on the use of the Defence Special Undertakings Act, and Emily Howie from the Human Rights Law Centre, and she talked about uh, the use of Pine Gap if it is being used for drone attacks in countries that were not at war with what the the international legal implications might be. And the Alice Springs News Online has also every day from Monday provided a information outline around the trial, and also the ABC has on both days. So. A um, little bit of difference, I felt, in, in the way those two um, publications, both the ABC and um, the Alice Springs News, approached it. I think the Alice Springs News, and of course Alice Springs, you know, you're right there. You're right in the center. If Pine Gap is attacked, Alice Springs is going to be affected. So there's always been a very active peace group there. or Well, there has certainly been since the 80s. So the Alice Springs News Online seems to be a bit more sympathetic, perhaps, if that's, that's the best word to use. The headline was Peace Grill Pilgrim says he had permission to be on Pine Gap. That was the headline. Whereas the ABC's headline was Pine Gap accused trespasser assisted by God, in quotes, to enter the top secret defense facility. Now, it's no doubt that, you know, the pilgrims were informed by their religious practice. And in in fact, you know, so that that's not inaccurate. But it's interesting what, like, there's no no reference at all in that and, and very little reference in the article around the, the political context of Pine Gap. And in fact, the ABC article 
uh, says that, uh, uh, speaking to the jury, because he's representing himself, Paul Christie, um, he argued that Pine Gap's activities justified his actions. And then there's a, within that, it says, of which there was little official confirmation. Now, a person reading might say that this guy doesn't, like the defendant, doesn't know what he's talking about because there's little confirmation. I, I, or, you know, the fact that the government's not owning up to what's actually going on there. Uh, and, I, you know, it's, it's hard to you know, work out the intent. However, there is a lot of evidence around from research done by the Nautilus Institute about what is going and also revelations uh, out of um, Snowden's uh, leaked papers as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of evidence around that says Pine Gap is involved in drone assassinations in, um, in countries that we are not at war with. However, so anyway, to follow the trial, the trial and, of course, the other five pilgrims who did the, played the lament at Pine Gap for those people who had died uh, as a result of the activities conducted at Pine Gap, they start, that trial starts tomorrow. So I would recommend Alice Springs Online to, to keep a track of it, keep an eye on the ABC. And, um, yeah. Mm. Well, thank you, Judith. Mm. It was very comprehensive, and it's amazing that it starts tomorrow. We had, um, I've just forgotten her name. Margaret. We had Margaret come in, didn't we, and yeah. talk about her, her lament, walking up that sand dune, a beautiful story, but the repercussions for that. And as you said at the start, mm. it is amazing that it's mm. taken, I mean, why now? Yeah, why, well, I mean, one, there was one other prosecution, and it, that was also Pine Gap, people coming into Pine Gap, and that was in 2007. And uh, interestingly, the, initially, the the protesters were fined a small fine, and, well, that depends on your circumstances, 3,000-something, and then 10,000 to fix up the fence that mm. they must have messed up. However, that was overturned because uh, I, I think there was something about... Um, the the government had to provide information about what Pine Gap actually does in order to provide their defense, and they didn't want to do that. So that whole thing was overturned. They didn't, and I, I had a feeling that then, and I think this is supported by both major parties, actually. I think then the government was, or the prosecutors were quite upset they didn't get a prison sentence. So, so my sense is they're they're really going for it this time, but uh, I could be wrong. I mean, there's a lot to read on this, as as you can imagine. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk about Lebanon at all, or whether we're we've, we're up against now another. Interview. No, no. Let's hear about Lebanon as well. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's absolutely bizarre because the prime minister of Lebanon, Saad Hariri, went to visit, and I think unexpectedly, the Saudi Arabia. And when he got there, there wasn't the great entourage to meet him as the prime minister. And then not long after that, he resigned as prime minister of Lebanon. And there's a bit and, of suspicion around well, um, why he might have, even though he, uh, uh, he's, he's, everybody's heard his voice and he says that he's got a reason for resigning, but some people are going, oh, there's some foul play. Well, well, yes. And I guess the other thing is it's important to understand the system in Lebanon because they have a president who is traditionally a Maronite. And then they have a prime minister who is a Sunni. And so those, those positions, and then they have a speaker who I think is, I, I just need to check, maybe a Shia, but I'm not sure. So I won't, won't go into that. But at least those two things, it's useful to know. But it's also useful to know that um, Satariri is actually a dual citizen. Given, given the debate that's going on here. <laughs> Obviously no Section 44 in Saudi Arabia then. <laughs> well, no, of Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, Lebanon. So he's a dual citizen of Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. And... Um, I mean, it's very frightening. I think it must be terrifying for people in Lebanon right now because 
what the, because also um, Saudi has asked all their citizens to come home from Lebanon as well because they're in a state of conflict or you know against Lebanon. Anyway, what the issue is is that is Hezbollah has become is part of the of the parliament in Lebanon and has uh, you know links I mean sorry alliances with uh, Hariri's party or with the Sunni as well as. Uh, you know, the president, so that alliance is formed as part of the parliament, and uh, Hezbollah is quite strong there. And um, the Saudis, I think, are saying that um, Saad Hariri has to distance himself and his party from Hezbollah uh, because they are active in, you know, outside of um, Lebanon in, in Yemen and also in, in the Syria fighting as well, the Syria war. So it sounds like it's a possible precedent for a Saudi attack in Lebanon. We don't know. I mean, I don't want to say too much, but it's it's just very worrying. And, you know, having lived in Lebanon for a little while, I mean, the word on the street is Hezbollah is the only, they're called the resistance, and they're the defense against Israel coming in and, you know, making another land grab. And there was a war in 2006 with Israel. So in many Lebanese people, whatever they think, about the politics feel that it's a defense. I mean, that's my that's from the street. You know, that's not a research position. But um, if and I guess this other this also comes not long after Trump visited uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and and I understand the Americans are selling a lot of arms to them, and even Australia, I think, is selling arms. So what anyway, a lot. <laughs> what a mess. Uh, and uh, you know, yeah. So. That was a rather long story from me, but anyway, I think it's something to watch. The best uh, reporting I've seen on that is the first report came out was from the New York Times, interestingly, and Al Jazeera. And you could also go to the, the Star, Daily Star in Lebanon and, and just see what's going on. But I know Lebanese people are very distressed, and the view is that he can't come home. He's not being allowed to come home right now. If you want to SMS us with uh, any thoughts or have your say, 0488930855. That phone number, 0488930855. And a couple more events uh, that are coming up today uh, on the uh, on the postal vote or postal survey, whatever we're calling it. Um, this morning, if you want to head down to the uh, to the state library, the Yes campaign will be out the state uh, at the state library from 9 a.m. or from 9:30 a.m. They've got 9 a.m. on their on their Facebook page, but uh, 9:30 a.m. Uh, for the 10 a.m. result, uh, and then later on 5:30 p.m. Uh, on Ligon Street outside Trades Hall. Um, there's also a couple of parties going on around. One of them is at Loop Bar, Loop Project Space and Bar, 23 Myers Place uh, in the CBD, um, and I'll have some uh, some drinks and some music and whatnot. Um, and that's all happening from midday um, today. So uh, it's a big day. What it, yeah, whatever happens. Yeah. What a big day. We're here at 3CR. Thanks, Judith, for that comprehensive insight into some of the goings on around the world. Stay tuned. City Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues to privatisations and our utility services, to building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits.
You're here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast with Nick, Judith and Patty, and we are joined in the studio with Graham Willett, who is a doctor, a culture historian and activist and president of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. No, on the committee now. On the committee. Oh, oh wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a busy, busy little enterprise. It is, it is. And you've been doing a lot of work, I'd imagine. Um, thanks for being here with us, Graham. It's been... Glad to do it. Yeah. As we were saying before, it's been a busy time for yourself and many others. Yeah. I mean, obviously with the activists, you know, people have been really involved and been doing this for a long time. It's been escalating. Um, you might have thought the two weeks between the end of voting and now would be quiet, but it's all about now what's the bill. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yes. moving past that bill and presuming it's a yes, which yes. I think I think it should be, um, <laughs> it's a yes. Uh what do you think is going to happen next? Where's this movement? It's been a long movement that's been happening for a long time. I think it's only come into a lot of the, the collective conscience of Australia, the fight that has been going on for the rights. Um, where do you think you take this momentum and, and run with it? I hope um, that enough of the people who have been involved in this campaign have learnt that it matters to be involved, to do things, and decide to apply it to the kind of plethora of other issues that we now have to have to tackle um a few years ago a friend and i were talking about the idea of writing a book or editing a book called 10 things that matter more than same-sex marriage and the problem wasn't coming up with 10 the problem would have been narrowing it down to 10 because this is so much stuff um but and for a while i think there was a certain resentment about this sucking up all the energy but in fact i think it may well have revitalized people or got them active uh, learnt some lessons and decide to apply it to other things. Mm. Big time, because it has, in, it has sucked people into this issue and it's concentrated a lot of energy and a lot of activist work. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people have been educated through a lot of people who have been fighting the fight for a long time, like yourself. Um, where do you see... the ne- If you had the choice, where would you push it next in your... Safe schools. Yeah, schools are safe the sc- most important issue around at the moment. Um you know, it's on the list, but I think it's up at the top. It's much harder, obviously. You know, it, once once the marriage reform stuff attached the label marriage equality to itself and fairness, it was kind of easy to fight for. Um, the safe school stuff is more complicated and needs harder work. But I, I do think, I mean, you know, it got a lot of attention a year or so ago when it was under attack. That could easily come back now. I think that might be with the right turn their energies. Mm. Although I actually think they'll be so demoralised by this, we won't hear from them. Oh, I hope so. That's the plan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's amazing the resilience of the right, actually, because uh, after um, the HIV epidemic, when there was then a lot of education, thanks to Neil Blewett's work yep. about you know all the whole issues and that schools, and, and then of course the the studies that were done, uh, I think out of Melbourne, but national studies about young people uh, who were very vilified in schools, um, the writing themselves in surveys. Yes, yes. So we, we had all of those things go on, and then all of a sudden we just get hit with a strong activism again. So they went a bit yeah. quiet, yeah. I think. Uh, and I think that was partly facilitated by very good community education. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then there they are. And you can go back further. Ever. I mean, the late 70s, you know, yes. kind of like the attacks on the gains of the previous decade. Yeah. Um, you know, the right came out in force, Mary Whitehouse, yes. Anita Bryant, and we fought that off, and they yeah. went quiet for a while. Then they seized the opportunity that was presented by AIDS. Uh, we fought that off. They went quiet yeah. again. It's a, you know, it's a recurring struggle. You yes. never 
settle all this stuff once and for all. I feel like I've never seen anything quite like this with uh, the rise of um, of these these kinds of attitudes that we're seeing uh, among so-called right-wing, and I, I still hate that dichotomy of left-right, but uh, yes. never in my, I'm 31, and I, I feel like I've I'm never... Say, you're very young. Yes, I guess. <laughs> I've been I'm feeling older. four times now. <laughs> four <laughs> times, so it does just keep... So I'm sure it probably happened when I was younger and not paying as much right. attention, but uh, it's... Um, uh, not just not just here, but around the world, um, there seems to be a renewed uh, energy and sharing of resources between these, uh, you know, neo-fascists yep. <laughs> for the for the worst of the worst. Yeah, yeah, the right. Um, well, like us, actually, they're internationally inclined. They've always tended to work together the same way that our side has. Um, it's it's inevitable, and it, I think it is worse in some places now than it was. 10, 20 years ago. Do you mean uh, in Australia or no, countries? No, I think in, in some Australia countries. it's much better than it's okay. been. Yeah. You know, it's been 48 years of unrelenting success and hard work, but we've been succeeding all the way. But you think about some parts of the world, things are worse than it was 10 or 20 yes. years ago. And yeah, I think that's something else I'd like, you know, see us turn our attention to. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the situation in Chechnya, just yes. one extreme example. Yep. Yep. I played decide for every issue you recently wrote in the Overland Journal... Graham, it was a great article sort of detailing and critiquing the arguments for and against, um, which sort of led into a, I don't know, a very positive outlook on these events and sort of, as we've spoken about, touch on the fight that's been existing for a long time within the community. What would be, what's a, another plebiscite? Could you see this continuing on in politics outside of this issue, carrying on and working? Well, the right won't be pushing for plebiscites. Um, <laughs> yes, two, three, yeah, many plebiscites, I say, yes. Um, you know, euthanasia, all, almost any social issue that they want to take up, where mm. the public is ahead of where they are, um, I'd like to see more plebiscites. I like, and this has been enormously enthusiastically embraced. You know, 80% voted. I remember when we were thinking maybe 60 or 70% voting would be good. So we've had this huge turnout. We're going to have a very big yes vote. Um, hopefully it encourages people to trust the public more, you know, to rely on their common sense as long as we go to them with the issues, which we've now been doing for 13 years, so, you know, it takes a while sometimes. But the euthanasia stuff would go through in a, in a plebiscite. Mm. Uh, so would a lot of other issues, I think. Mm. Big time. Now, another question I wanted to think about was what... Would you see in the Australian archive now from this plebiscite in a few years? As a cultural historian, would it be a PO box, or would it? What do you think we'll be getting? Oh, if we could seize one object and yeah. take it. Yeah, I did. I did like that. Somebody said that the um, they lived around the corner from the post office, uh, the letterbox that Ian Thorpe, not Ian Thorpe, Thorpe anyway, used to in the in the ad, and we were going to sneak out in the night and steal the letterbox. That would be good. Um, otherwise, it's a mass of, of paper, obviously. But also the the electronic stuff. My job, I decided during this, was to collect the ephemeral stuff. So I've kept a diary of stories that people have mentioned and I've taken photos of the streets and things because a lot of it has just gone on over Mm. kitchen tables and in conversation and all of that's going to get lost. So I thought now would be the moment. Yes, of course, we have sure. a much better collection of yes stuff than no stuff. Yeah. We, we, well, we when try. you say you've collected the story, have you interviewed people or is it more a, re- a written... Yeah, like, I jot down stuff that people right, say. Yeah. There's a hell of a research project in this for oh, know, yes. somebody. Yeah, there will well, be. A bunch of people, actually. It'll be yes, a big indeed. project. Yes. Um, 
Yeah. Mm. yeah. And where are you going to be celebrating today, do you think, Graham? So off to the State Library this morning for the, the announcement at 10. And <laughs> it really is at 10. Yes. I don't know why I thought it was 9.30. Anyway, oh, they're saying gather at 9.30. Oh, that's, that's it. Okay, there you go. The I was already gathering, something. yes. <laughs> uh, and then Ligon Street tonight. I've actually got no an event at the Wheeler Centre to go to at 6, but I figure by the time I get to Ligon Street at 7 or 7.30, it'll be off and running. What's happening at the Wheeler Centre that you've got going on there? Uh, it's a, a talk by, amongst other people, Tony Birch, Indigenous writer, who's oh, yes. to be a friend yes. of mine, so I scored a ticket. Um, mm. it's, it's a reminder. There's lots of other things going on. You know, it's <laughs> not all about marriage. Yes. Yeah, there are a lot of other things going on, and, and you know, this is something that really we probably should have got out of the way uh, longer ago, but um, I um, had a read of Daniel Andrews' piece that he wrote for the for the Age. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to no, read it no. yet, but it will be in the Age today. Um, and he was really um, uh, focusing on the fact that change um, can sometimes be a painful and long process, and sometimes you know you feel like you've got this grand victory, and then you know a week later you've got this really uh, dark low. Um, but the important thing is to to focus on why you're doing it. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, in this case, love. <laughs> it's fairly obvious. And um, and not give up. Keep fighting even when you're down in those depths because change is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, we've got this history of success which we can draw on, learn from, um, and apply to lots of other issues, not just queer issues, but in fact everybody should be watching this to see how we got what we got. You know, 50 years ago nobody was talking about same-sex marriage. Yeah. Um, now... Well, I think it became inevitable in 2004 when they banned it. Mm-hmm. At that point, I think, right, that now it's going to happen. Mm. I, I think the point that you made earlier and uh, is that issues are never won completely. You know, you always have to be alert. You always have to – you just can't sit back, okay, I don't need to do anything else now because we've got that because there are people who will grab them back, yep. who will try and claw back, you know, power or uh, on that. So – my feeling is that this has enlivened. That it, I mean, it's terrible that we had to have this. I mean, it's a really bad way to um, to do human rights work. You know, to, to have a plebiscite. And we'll we'll look after the rights of people. If you know, um, that, you know, where's the leadership in that? But it does seem, from what you're saying, uh, that it has regalvanized the community. Yeah. Plus, we kept up coming up with new issues. Yes. You know, we hadn't yes. finished getting decriminalisation before we started talking about anti-discrimination. That's right. You know, Indeed. Kind of, we move faster than we realise. We move further than we realise or that we yeah. expect. Mm. And so after this, you know, we can. Come, there is, in fact, a leaflet around pointing out all the issues we should now be attending to. Good. But chances are there'll be stuff on that's not on there that we're going to come up with over the next, yeah. you know decade. Mm, and in that article you point to a really good point that a, it's a sad truth that Australians have had to earn their rights here. It hasn't been enshrined in constitution. Uh, yes. I think it's a truth. Mm. I don't think it's sad. I like the fact that we have to fight for our rights because it means we have to go out to society and persuade people. You know, the idea that women should have the vote could have been decided by a high court if we'd had that kind of constitution. But in fact, women had to go out and you know hammer and weigh at it until they got the right and you drag the politicians behind you. Uh, they legislate, and then it's got them on the books. The High Court can always revisit a decision. Mm. The legislature can, but they're not going to. You know, there is no chance at all of marriage ever being repealed. And then on that point, Graham, last question. Because it has been such a long movement, what would you take? Is there a, a, 
Is there a system to this activist work that can be applied to other issues that you can see now looking back and having lived through it? Yeah. So in the early 70s, when the first movements were set up, the idea was to build a big movement, a big consolidated, unified movement. And shockingly, it fell apart in about three years, um, fragmented. But in fact, that turned out to be a very good thing. People go off, they do what they want to do, they work on what they want to work on, they stop fighting with each other about things that while important, are never going to be resolved. So at the moment, all the little plethora of support activist groups, action groups, are the way forward. And looking back, that, that's the achievement of the early 70s, that model. Everybody go, do what you want to do, uh, and get stuck into it. Thank you, Graham. Thanks for joining us. You've got a busy day ahead of you, as always. Yes, yes, lots of partying, which is you know, a good thing. <laughs> That's a good kind of day to it's have. Day. <laughs> yeah. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. And on the phone line now, uh, another one of the candidates for the uh, by-election in Northcote uh, this weekend, this Saturday. Uh, if you are in the Northcote area, you need to get out and vote. Uh, Nevna Sporovska, who is standing as an independent. Uh, Nev, um, good morning. Good morning, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on the show. No problem. I understand you had a late night of um, getting uh, postering uh, done last night. That's right. I was spreading the good word of drug law reform all across Northgate and some parts of Thornbury. So many listeners if they're in that area might be seeing a few of those posters up and about this morning. I'll check it out when I go home. <laughs> <laughs> now, now you are a uh, an independent. So let's um, let's hear why why should people of Northcote be uh, voting for you, Nevena Sporovska? Why? Because they get to have two bites of the democracy sausage if they choose to vote for independence before their major party. Because they can preference an independent and then allocate their own preferences to ensure that their vote ends up where they want it to be. In my case, my votes are going for the Greens. Because there's been a lot more action uh, on drug law reform and homelessness advocacy and general political disruption on their end whilst acknowledging that the Andrews government has made a huge step forward by uh, confirming that we will be having a safe injecting clinic. Uh, for all my particular areas, I'm particularly passionate about homelessness advocacy, given that the two largest groups that are experiencing sleeping rough are young people and middle-aged women. So while it's great that renter reforms have gone through and someone like myself, who's been a long-term renter with no prospect of owning a house, which I've found my peace with, can now put nails in their wall, I'm far more concerned about their many thousands of people who won't be able to secure a home and the many, many more thousands of people who are on the public housing list. So clearly that's that's one of your uh, key issues, uh, homelessness, um, and you mentioned drug law reform. Do you have uh, another uh, key issue that's really important for you for the, for the Northcote electorate? Definitely. Um, to address the harms of gambling, I, something that I have 
become more and more aware of. And startlingly, it's 18 to 24-year-olds who have the biggest spend on the pokies because these venues are often, uh, sorry, these pokies are often in cultural venues. So places that you might go to see a gig or places that when you're first uh, becoming an adult uh, will sell you alcohol. And it's just how many young people are starting to engage in a nightlife. So I'd love to see a maximum of $1 bet 10 hours closing, and also uh, $200 maximum withdrawal. And there are quite a few groups in the area uh, advocating for this. So I'm standing with them calling to those reforms. Yeah, and it, it's a huge issue, gambling. I don't think even we appreciate the, the depth and um, that it's that people will go to to get money out of people. So the exactly research right. is, is showing, you know, so many issues related to that and young people and it's all in sporting as well. Things that are really deep in Australian culture are being affected by gambling. But, but I'm wondering, uh, and it's really the same question I asked earlier, what brings you into politics? I mean, it's a pretty adversarial environment. Uh, what is it that has kind of brought you here? What's brought me here is that you can affect positive change and have conversations with the government that as an activist or someone who's campaigning for a cause, it's very difficult to achieve throughout your campaign. So at the start of mine, I was able to sit down with the Labor team, with the Greens team, and directly communicate with them the issues that were important to me and also have a very active ear because there are preferences uh, in Victorian group voting tickets and the like. So being able to have the government's ear on behalf of my cause is the main reason that I'm involved as an independent. And finally, uh, Nev, uh, for our uh, listeners who might be in the North Canary and are voting this weekend, uh, a final pitch to them on why they should vote for Nevina Sporovska, independent for Northcote. Take two bites of that democracy sausage. Let's get some more <laughs> active, incredible, loudmouthed women in politics and vote for issues that are important to you, whether it's myself or another candidate. I implore you to at least put them first and then put uh, your political party of choice second. Let's hear it for loudmouth women, I say. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck on Saturday, Nev, and thanks for joining us on 3CR. Thank you so much. Have a fabulous morning. See you later. Um, and that's just about all we've got time for. That is about all we've got time for here on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We'd like to thank a few of the guests who have come in and made their time starting with Graham, who was just in, and then we... Yes, Laura Chip from the Reason Party, who was the other uh, candidate standing in the North Goodbye election we heard from earlier this morning. And we heard also from Amy Frew, a human rights lawyer, uh, about the, uh, Australia's obligations under the Human Rights International Codes. And uh, don't forget as well, their State Library from 9.30am, uh, the uh, Trades Hall from 5pm, uh, and there's also a party at Loop Bar. There's parties all over the place, though. Lots of venues will be holding parties. We find out at 10am what the answer will be. Stay tuned to 3CR. I'm sure we'll be all over it. Up next is Sticks Together. Thank you very much for joining us here. And we're sticking together. <laughs>